Amateur Telescope Making with Tom Otvis on episode 403 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. Before we get going, Shane, we have a new Patreon supporter to thank. We do. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and uh, we uh, like to thank all of our Patreon supporters in these moments, so um yeah just a big thanks to all of those folks and it helps keep the show going and i think we even got our planisphere sent out from chris wilcox this past week if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah that's pretty cool um that planisphere i still i might order one for myself uh just because that thing looks so cool i <laughs> i think it's a, a real neat resource i've never seen a planisphere that had that much packed into it so i think uh you know if anybody's looking for one, I think it's linked on Chris's uh, book website. I think it was listed on there, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. So City City Light City Lights Books City Lights Books Bookstore. Yeah. yeah, people should find it. Yeah, sorry, I should have that in front of me. But uh, anyway, Chris will uh, hook you up if you're in the states. I don't know if we can order from Canada. We'll just have to figure that one out. But welcome back to the show, Tom. You're uh, went on again to talk about amateur telescope making. So what we should do before I forget is make sure we put you uh, into context with the show. So you're uh, an amateur astronomer living in Ontario and your area of interest is uh, amateur astronomy. So maybe we'll just get or amateur telescope making inside like a sort of a it's like a bit of a sub hobby in our in our hobby of amateur astronomy and tom so when did you get interested in astronomy and then telescope making all this uh let's just put everything in context for the listeners sure um well i i got interested in astronomy back in high school um and at that time i uh i ended up building my first telescope which was an eight inch f7 dob and uh, actually, even before that, um, you know, back when I was much younger, um, my parents got me uh, one of those Tasco refractors, which um, I guess nowadays they're disparagingly called hobby killers. Um, you know, but back in the day, you know, that that was sort of one of the entry entry level telescopes, and and you know, and it worked for me. You know, I was able to to um, you know see the moon and. Uh, uh, not really the planets, uh, because I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. But I did um, look at sunspots. I seem to remember looking at sunspots as well, because it had like this projection mode, you know, where you could uh, do eyepiece projection and uh, look at sunspots. So, you know, that was really cool. But, um, you know, it, because of how small it was, you know, it was very limiting. And so uh, I decided that I'd like to, you know, get something bigger in aperture, and so that's when I did that eight-inch f seven, and and that one, it, it, that was more telescope construction, and you know, and maybe we can we can double click on this a little bit later on in the talk, but you know, ATM or amateur telescope making is, is a pretty broad, um, a broad topic, and there are lots of ways that um, you know that people can can get into it, um, you know, depending on what itches they want to scratch and and you know and how deep they want to go um mm -hmm. and you know and, and at one level you know you, uh, telescope making is is about constructing telescopes you know from commercially available parts 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, back in the, in the seventies, you know, when, when I was doing that, um, you know, the parts were readily available and, and telescopes themselves were pretty expensive. And so, you know, one of the motivations for assembling it yourself is you could get, you know, a larger aperture scope for, um, for less money than it would if you were, um, if you were buying like a Mead or a Celestron or something like that. Um, so, um, yeah, so hey, that, Tom, that telescope, yeah. Quick question. What, what Tasco was it that you started with and do you still you know, have it? It was or? a 60 millimeter, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, um, there was a, um, uh, a place to buy stuff called consumers distributing. Oh and, yeah. 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 And, you know, and they had like a catalog and, uh, and, and I remember, every year with my parents sitting down with the consumers distributing catalog and, and kind of making a Christmas list. Um, so anyhow, it, uh, that, that scope came from consumers distributing and, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure it was a 60 millimeter and no, I do not have that anymore. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea what, whatever happened to that. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. So. No, that's sometimes the, the way it goes. So, but yeah, no, I was just, just curious that that was still kicking around. I, I had a telescope, I believe it was a Tasco. It was absolutely like, uh, about twice the size of a finder scope in length, but I think maybe 40 millimeters in aperture. And I'm fairly certain the lenses were were plastic. And yeah, pretty much yeah. Uh, the moon was about the only thing I, I could see through it. So you started talking a little bit about the uh, telescope making or the amateur telescope making. So this, this is one of the most fascinating parts of amateur astronomy, uh, to me anyway, is that people build their own telescopes, they still build their own telescopes, and the the telescopes which people are building now are uh, are kind of pushing amateur astronomy in, in new and interesting directions, like these uh, F3-type telescopes. I know like your 14-inch that, uh, that you've built. And I'm just curious, Tom, uh, maybe we can just give people just a really quick introduction to sort of uh, what amateur telescope making is and sort of why this is the part of the hobby that you're interested in. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, the this telescope construction that I was referring to on the 8-inch F7, you know, that that's less and less common now, I think. And the reason is because you can get decent commercial scopes for for not too much money in that in that range. And so you're not you're not actually doing it to save any money. Um, so if, if that's if that's the type of scope that you want, then chances are you're not going to go down the ATM route. So typically people will go down the ATM route because um, A, they want to just do something with their own hands, you know, so that's that's totally a, a reasonable, uh, reasonable thing to do. And I'm very much in that kind of category. Um, but, but often it's to, um, provide them a scope that they can't readily purchase, um, because of whatever factor. So for example, you know, there would be lots, not lots, but there will be people that are making travel scopes, right? So, um, you know, so getting, getting a big, um, you know, Dobsonian, um, or getting something with an equivalent aperture, but is, you know, collapsible so that you can put it into a backpack, you know, that, that you, you can't readily buy that kind of thing. And so an ATM, you know, would, would be trying to scratch that itch of having, you know, a scope that's of decent aperture, but that they can fit into a backpack or under, or under a, 
um, airline seat or whatever and take them to New Zealand or you know that kind of thing. So do you, uh, I'm just curious, do you remember the first um, amateur built telescope that you ever looked through? Um, well, uh, including mine. <laughs> <laughs> Was that um, the first one you looked through? Was one I, you I guess, but yeah. you know, so so you know, the one that I constructed, um, you know, back in the seventies. Yeah, I mean, it was I I didn't have anything to compare to, and uh, you know, because I wasn't, I was sort of a, I was a member of the RASC, but I was kind of a, you know, I didn't go to meetings or anything like that. So you know, I was just getting the, um, getting the uh, the mailings, you know, of the of the different uh, publications and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I never, I never looked through, um, you know, many scopes that other people had. Um, and, and I think actually the first star party I went to was, um, was when I was unveiling, um, Artemis, the, the 14 inch. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I never went to star parties either. So yeah, I was kind of, uh, kind of a loner in that, in that respect. And that's just sometimes the way things, uh, you know, are for people. They're busy with other things, but they really want to do this. And right. that's interesting. So it's something that that you can get into and you can use by using books, probably in the seventies, and then you know, getting into the present day, uh, maybe a, a few more web based resources. Oh yeah, a huge amount of resources on the web for you know whatever you're you're interested in, and you know, and and then the sort of the best clearinghouse for all of that would be Cloudy Nights, mm -hmm. right? So Cloudy Nights has got a, a super active ATM forum. So whatever part of the of that that aspect of the hobby that you're interested in, um, you know, there will be people to help you on on cloudy nights. And there's. Um, there's also lots of folks who have great amateur telescope making websites like Mel Bartels. Mel Bartels. He's, he's yeah. got some great, he's been on the show before, of, of course, as you know, uh, yeah. and the listeners would know. And I think on his website, he has, has a whole section for resources. And then the, the cool part is, is that it's really like this non-competitive thing where people will walk you through each step. And even people who are, who are commercial, like, um, Mike Lockwood, who who also builds his own telescopes, he's a mirror maker and mirror producer, but also has all kinds of details on uh, on telescope making. But I got to say this: um, the telescope making really caught my interest. I, I thought it was kind of a neat thing. And when I went to my first star party, which is uh, in in the nineties, um, and I was just getting into it. Uh, into astronomy, and I I went to this star party, and there was a variety of telescopes there. I think the biggest one was an 18 inch that Dave Lane, who's uh, who's an amateur astronomer and and was uh, a professional astronomer as well, uh, running the St Mary's Observatory in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he had built an 18 inch uh, f four and a half or an f five or something like that, and I just couldn't get over that that somebody could have constructed this telescope just like in their in their garage, kind of in their spare time between, you know, family activities and work and anything else one might have going on. It just seemed almost fantastical that, that A, somebody would, would still do this in the present age. And then, then B, that the telescope could just work so phenomenally. You, you know, when you were at the, you know, holding on to the upper assembly and driving that telescope around, it was just impossible to believe that uh, a telescope could be better than this. You know, it was just amazing. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, you know, and, and that that's the other kind of reason why people would do something like this is to um, is to build something that they just can't readily buy. 
um, you know, so these big aperture scopes, you know, that that were kind of pioneered, I guess, by John Dobson, you know, showing how easy it is to make big, big scopes with relatively um, simple techniques and uh, and cheap parts and whatnot. You know, it 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 really kind of opened the doors for people to experiment on these big dobs, and uh, you know that that you just simply can't buy. Or it would just be, you know, prohibitively expensive, you know, to have, um, you know, something, you know, I mean, just think of, you know, what what's the cost of a 16 inch meat or a Celestron, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's huge. And, you know, whereas, you know, for maybe, well, I, I won't say a 10th, but for some non-trivial fraction of that cost, you can go 18, 20, 24, you know, depending on how much, how much work you want to put into it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and then and then of course they're they're like the real trailblazers like Mel Bartels, you know, who's who's pushing the apertures, you know, up to thirty inches and 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 soon to be forty two inches, you know, big big scopes um, that that you just you just simply can't buy, right? And and so um, you know there are people that um, no admittedly you know, a very very small number of atmers you know they're wanting to push those kinds of envelopes mm -hmm. um, but but there are people there and 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 it's all to to kind of build stuff that you can't readily buy yeah i'm just curious then, i'm just curious to uh, sort of pull shane in um if if there was any uh, sort of amateur built telescopes uh, that you've had had a chance to look through that that stick out in your mind Mm, yeah, so there's a, a local guy in the in the Regina Club that made. Well, oh, oh, Shane, I think I've muted you by accident. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, am I <laughs> local guy did, Regina Club? Yeah, okay, You're good. <laughs> yeah, a guy in the Regina Club built two that I'm aware of, and um, the first one. I want to say it was like a six inch Newtonian, fairly long focal length. But what was really cool about it, the, the OTA was wood, um, but he had like two sort of, uh, releases on top. So you'd flick those and it would open up so that you could see like the inside of the telescope and he used it for outreach and educational purposes so that, you know, you could show them the inside of the telescope and explain how the light bounced around off the mirrors up to the eyepiece. So that one was kind of neat. And then he built a larger one. I want to say it's in the 15 to 17 inch aperture, but I think it was all built out of aluminum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know he had some issues, I think with collimation, but you know, I think, I think part of the fascination maybe, or maybe some of the joy for ATMers is, you know, you, you start off with the best intentions and run into some challenges and then you have to problem solve and overcome them. And, and that was the phase that uh, he was last in. I, and I think he's overcome them, but, um, that's, I think that's my extent with ATMers. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's all I've uh, been exposed to. And I think, uh, you know, another kind of important aspect to this is that it's not just about telescope making necessarily, um, you know, so there'll, there'll be ATMs that are, that are kind of building stuff to add on to the um, observing experience. So, you know, two examples would be, um, 
um, equatorial platforms, you know, mm. so you'll have a big daub that's on an Altaz mount, right? Um, but you still want to have some limited tracking. So what you'll do is you'll put it on an equatorial platform that will give you tracking for like an hour. And that allows you to do, um, you know, better, better observing without having to reposition all the time. Or if you're a sketcher, for example, you know, it'll keep your target in the, in the eyepiece, you know, for the 20 minutes or hour or however long it takes you to sketch the object, or you can do, um, um, stacking, um, you, you know, you, you'll be able to capture enough images to, to stack them and, and get sort of uh, a poor man's astrophotography rig set up. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing, um, Another example would be, um, um, so like on an email group that I'm on, the Oregon Scopeworks, there's, there's, a, there's a fellow named Dale Eason who's created something called SkySolve, which is basically a Raspberry Pi-based um, plate solver. And you just might you just tack it on to the side of your scope, and um, and with the Raspberry Pi camera and the plate solving, um, it can basically tell you where you're pointed at within a second, and then sync that to Sky Safari, so that um, so that you know your Sky Safari will show you what you're looking at. So if you're trying to um, you know find an object. You know, you can kind of point your scope and then um, and then and then it'll do the plate solve. And then, you know, within a second, it'll tell you, OK, you're not pointing here. And so you can fine tune it. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a different spin on the digital setting circles, Shane, you know, that that you've got. But mm -hmm. it's you know conceptually, you know, providing same kind of functionality. So, you know, the point is that that ATM is not just necessarily about building the telescope proper, but it's uh, you know potentially about building these things that kind of augment your your um, your astronomy experience. Right, so, right. You know, and three D printing, you know, has been such a huge um, uh, contributor or, or enabler of all of this stuff because you know now you can more easily build complicated parts that um you know that all kind of fit together nicely and uh um yeah it's it's you know the 3d printing part of atm is is really something that that i think is is gonna continue to provide a lot of um a lot of power to people so that they can um they can do literally whatever they want mm -hmm. you know i can't remember if we covered this off tom the first time we had you on talking about making telescopes um what what is the cost of the tooling needed you know for the mirror grinding and you know i think that there's some specialized tools that are required as a part of making telescopes is there sort of a ballpark if somebody wanted to really go down this path like what are those initial costs that they would have to consider outside of just parts and you know mirror blanks and things like that Right. Well, I mean, so so you're touching on mirror making, you know, which is which is probably the one of the harder core uh, aspects to ATM, you know. Okay. So so there, you know, there's the telescope assembly where you get a you know a prefab mirror and and um, and you get your secondary if you're making a Newtonian and you know and, and you're assembling everything mm. um, so that it becomes a, a construction project, which is which is not to trivialize it by any stretch. Um, uh, you know, but but if you're actually going to do the the really hardcore stuff of actually making your mirror because you can't readily buy it, for example, um, the 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 cost of actually making a mirror is 
not prohibitively high. Like you don't need it, it, the the techniques are surprisingly crude. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you basically have got um, you know a piece of glass, and you've got successively finer um, uh, grades of of uh, grit where the grit is um, um, uh, carborundum, uh, silicon carbide, um, or um, and then aluminum oxide, and then ultimately cerium oxide. But you can you can readily buy those, and it's not super expensive at all, like tens of dollars. You know, like not not okay. a lot. And um, and then and you make a tool, which is just basically cast from um, hydrostone is a commonly used uh, product. It's sort of it's sort of like gypsum, you know, but it's it's harder, and you can get it easily at a ceramics supply shop. Um, and then you just have uh, some tiles, um, you know, that you can just get at Home Depot. So to actually set yourself up and make a mirror um, is not um, is not hard from an expense standpoint, and and needing a lot of um, needing a lot of tooling outlay. Um, ultimately, when you get to the point where you're figuring your mirror so that it becomes the paraboloid that you need it to be, um, again the the techniques for doing that are are surprisingly crude. Um, you know, there you can you can build a Foucault tester um, very very easily for like tens of dollars, um, and and that that will allow you to to test the the figure of um, relatively slow mirrors. You know, like F six, F seven, F eight, that that kind of range. Mm-hmm. Once you're getting into faster mirrors, you probably want to do Ronke testing. But again, that's not prohibitively expensive. You just need this Ronke grading, which is essentially just a a piece of film that's got um, that's got fine lines on it, uh, printed on it, at, at, but but like at, at a really really close pitch, you know, like eighty five lines per inch, that kind of thing. That's that's actually right now it's a little bit harder to get because for some reason there aren't a lot of suppliers for that, but you, you can probably find it somewhere. Um, and then um, and then another um, way of testing mirrors. Um, that's a little bit more expensive is um, um, is using interferometry, um, which basically uses lasers to measure your surface profile. And, and but building your own um, a bath interferometer, it's called bath is is the proper name of it, um, is is also relatively inexpensive. Uh, it's like 60 bucks to get a kit, 60 bucks US to get a kit. Um, but there's a learning curve, you know, to using it. So all of this is to say that to actually make a mirror um, is not um, is not prohibitively expensive, but it is time consuming for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether you go down that path or not depends entirely on what your motivation is for making the mirror. You know, if it's just if it's just for the experience, um, you know, then then fine. But if you want an eight inch F7, for example, you know, is is it worth making as opposed to just buying one and then getting out there and actually using it? it that's kind of possibly not, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you want to build a 24-inch telescope or if you want to build, you know, in my case, I built the 14-inch, but I wanted something that was compact and portable. You know, so a 14-inch F7 would be a really big scope, but a 14-inch F2.6 is actually a very, very small um, small scope with big aperture, and th- and that's what I wanted. So that's why I built my own mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, now you know that once you have a mirror, I I guess the big the bigger cash outlay is getting it coated. 
Um, and, you know, and if you were to um, get your mirror aluminized, you know, coated with aluminum, which is, you know, in, in the last, I don't know, um, 50 years, you know, that that's sort of like the go-to way of doing it. Um, you know, that increases in cost as you um, as you go up in aperture. Um, I can't remember what the rule of thumb is, but, um, you know, but if I wanted to, for example, have my 14 inch coated, um, it probably would have been upwards of $500. Like it's, it, you know, it starts to add up once you get into the bigger apertures. And so a number of us have been experimenting with um, silvering our own mirrors. And, uh, and that is, again, a relatively inexpensive um, uh, way to go about it. Uh, the actual coating itself, if you wanted to silver your mirror, you might spend maybe um, 20 bucks in, in chemistry. Um, now, but there's a, you know, a bit of an initial outlay to get all the chemicals, um, you know, because you can't just, you know, buy like a, you know, a, a one shot silvering kit, you know, so you need to, you need to get the stuff for it. And, and, you know, if you go to, there's a, there's a place called Angel Gilding in the U.S., um, you know, that will sell the whole gear and chemistry as well as all of the all the things to spray on the silver and whatnot. And, and that'll be around four hundred dollars. Hmm. Um, but but at that point, you're you, you've got like a great setup and and and, the, and you've got enough chemistry to last you for years you know, so you just kind of amortize that over, over, you know, the lifetime of your mirror. The downside to the silvering is that you need to re-silver your mirror um, every year to three years, um, depending on, on, you know, what your, what your sort of ambient conditions are, because the silver does degrade, um, you know, which is one of the benefits of using the aluminum processes is that it generally won't degrade. So, um, so yeah, um, that's kind of a long-winded way to say, you know, that that it's it's you, you, you know all in from you know from from soup to nuts to to actually having a silvered mirror, you're probably in the five to seven hundred dollar range ish mm. thereabouts, yeah. and then and then and then of course it's it you know it's up to up to you know you to decide how big of a mirror you want to make, but but at that point you know it's it's not really. Um, um uh, not really a a big cost thing um you know i just recently purchased a bunch of 16 inch blanks and uh they cost about um 90 bucks canadian each so uh but the, you know these are these are admittedly thin blanks you know which is which is a whole other aspect of this atm you know stuff that we can talk about if if you want but uh yeah so that's that's kind of the orders of magnitude that you're looking at. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And you, you know, if you like, like you said, the, um, the cost, especially for a larger aperture mirror, uh, to, to make it yourself, if you're willing to go down that path and invest the time and probably some frustration, I would imagine in the learning process. Uh, but you can certainly save a lot of money if, uh, if 16 inch blanks are $90 Canadian and you know, the tooling isn't, overly expensive that's uh um that's compelling that's for sure it is yeah and 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 then you know of course you're all of all of these sort of outlays with the exception of the blank itself you know whether you make a 16 inch or whether you make a 24 inch or a 30 inch um you know the they they don't those those outlays don't scale 
you know, they, they're, they're just kind of fixed costs and, and it's just about, you know, the size of the mirror and, uh, and the particular optical configuration that, that you're looking at, you know, how fast you want it to go and uh, how thick you want the blank. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they impact the ease or the difficulty of, of making the mirror. Tom, I'm curious, when I was uh, visiting with you back in uh, October, end of October, Tom and I got, got together in person. I'd been in the neighborhood, so to speak, and he swung <laughs> by downtown Toronto and picked me up, which for anybody that's familiar with the area knows how much of a joke that is. Um, but at the time, you were talking about uh, re-illuminizing your 14-inch mirror, and I was just wondering uh, how that's uh, progressing. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the you know the, the process of resil- not illuminizing silvering. Sorry. Um, so yeah, yeah. The process of resilvering is is not a big deal. Like once you've silvered your mirror a few times, you, you get to know the process, and it's not not that big a deal. And so resilvering is is um, simply removing the old silver, um, which is um, very very simple to do. It's just chemistry, and uh, and and so you can use um, ferric chloride, which is easily you know purchased, um, or you can um, there there are other chemicals that that will remove silver. But but basically, it's kind of like a wipe on wipe off kind of thing. Um, you know, you just kind of put a little bit of this ferric chloride onto onto your surface, and uh, and you just wipe off the silver. It's quite magical and quite cool. Um, and then, and then resilvering is just, you know, basically um, cleaning your mirror extremely um, uh, thoroughly. Um, and and you know, we've got um, uh, those of us that are doing this. There, there's a there's a page that Howard Banich actually, who you had on the show, um, he maintains that that is kind of all of our collective wisdom on on how to silver mirrors. Um, and, and cleaning is cleaning is like the most important thing. So you need to, you know, spend a bit of time cleaning your mirror. Um, and then, and then you spray on the chemicals and, uh, and if you've done it correctly, you, you end up with a really nice, uh, really nice surface and all in, it takes maybe, I don't know, hour and a half roughly, um, you know, to, to strip clean and then, and then silver, um, and and then and then clean up afterwards and clean up your stuff. So it's so looking at an hour and a half, two hours. So it's not a, not a big deal from a time investment standpoint. Once you've done it, so to answer your question, how did it go? It went it went really well. Um, it's it's one of one of my better um, my better silvering attempts. Um, and but the irony is that um, I ended up. So I did it at the beginning of December, and uh, I had uh, you know teed myself up uh you know to take off a good chunk of time towards the uh, christmas holidays from work and mm-hmm. i had planned to do a bunch of observing you know so that's why i wanted a nice nice clean silver mirror um and uh and you know to do a bunch of observing during the christmas holidays and i swear to god like from the from the time i silvered to like almost the end of january there was like not one clear night it was so you know i'm listening to you guys saying oh man this is the best we've ever had and (laughs) you guys were just like observing every night and and literally there was like perhaps two clear nights between the beginning of december and the end of january you know and and you know i've I can't just drop everything and, you know, and go observing, you know, so, it, you know, for, for those clear nights to line up, you know, to when I was free, wasn't going to happen. So it was very, very frustrating. Um, 
so so the you know the 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 silvering turned out really well you know has it been used no <laughs> and and that's really really annoying um, I shouldn't be laughing at you. It's just like, that's just the way it goes. Like, I really understand that. It is. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, unfortunately I've, I've got a number of irons in the fire, right. And, and yeah. astronomy is just one of them. And, and so it's just, it's frustrating, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm vicariously, you know, observing through you guys, you know, but, it, but I do find it frustrating, you know, that, that I, you know, that I built this scope and, you know, and I silver this mirror and, you know, and it just doesn't get the use that, you know, that, that I want, which yeah. is, which is frankly driving, you know, some of my future ATM projects. Yeah. And, and, and I know, I, I think you want to, you want to talk about that and then I'll be happy to kind of double click on that. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my observing patterns and notwithstanding the fact that, you know, that I'm doing ATM in part, you know, because I'm, I'm, I just enjoy the technical challenge, you know, and the, and the engineering aspect of it. So, so I, I, I dig that part of it, but I would also like to actually use these instruments that I'm making. And so, you know, so part of, Part of the direction that I'm going in, um, you know, is to hopefully uh, um, kind of make that more of a reality, given my current circumstances of not having an observatory, you know, that I can drive 20 minutes to, um, you know, living in in the outskirts of Toronto, you know, where the skies are, you know, frankly, like seven-ish, seven or eight, you mm -hmm. know, like not, not great. And uh, yeah, so... Well, Tom, look, if if you're ever worried about your telescopes not being used as much, I will I will take the hit and give you the same offer I've made others. You're more than welcome to keep them at my place and I will make sure they get lots of use. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your other projects. I know that uh, you're doing one of the uh, uh, printed binoculars. Maybe you can tell us about uh about you know your involvement with that project and and anything else that you're working on yeah so um yeah so the the first new project well actually so I'll, I'll go to the printed binoculars in a sec but um you know one of the things that uh, that i had had been working on and and i've had on my to-do list for quite some time um is to redo the equatorial platform part of artemis um, because you know when I had been using um, my my 14 inch um, and and I had created an equatorial platform for it, it generally speaking worked really really well. I was super happy with it, and um, you know I, I remember taking it to um, to you know an outreach event at at University of Toronto or to Starfest, you know the Star Party in um, in August in Ontario. You know, and 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 I would turn on the the platform, and I would like frankly forget that it was on, and and it would just work, and 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 then suddenly someone will say, oh, something's drifting out of the eyepiece, and it was because it had been tracking for an hour, and I needed to just reset the platform. Wow. So so generally speaking, it worked really really well, with the one caveat that there were certain orientations of the telescope where the weight distribution made the drive um, not track. And that really annoyed me, and so, um, so I've had it as a as a project to redo the actual driving of it. Excuse me, redo the driving of it to have more torque 
and and to to kind of get get around that problem. So that that's you know that's one project that I've had on the back burner for quite some time, and I ended up spending a fair amount of time during this Christmas break where I wasn't observing um, redoing that because it's been on my to do list for quite some time. Um, but um, but aside from that, um, you're right. Uh, you know, the first non Artemis related project that I worked on was um, doing um, kind of being an alpha tester for Robert Asimendi's um, 3D printed binos. And, and you had Robert on the show and he was talking about his um, 60 millimeter um, binoculars called Magic, um, you know, that he was releasing. And uh, but at the same time, he had um, in the queue um, an, an 80 millimeter version called Heart, and um, and so I was interested in the larger aperture, and so I was helping him sort of alpha test um, that design, and um, you know, printing out all the parts and seeing what worked and what didn't work and that sort of thing. And ultimately, I uh, towards the end of the summer, I got um, I got it all put together. And, uh, you know, and had some first, uh, had a first light on it. And uh, generally it worked really, really well. I was, I was quite, quite surprised, you know, the, the actual optics themselves. And this was an example of construction as opposed to, you know, making all of the optics, you know, so the lenses I got from surplus shed, um, there are some secondary, small elliptical secondary mirrors that are part of the optics as well that I got uh, from Alibaba. And, uh, you know, but the majority of the effort in this was actually, you know, printing the parts and constructing the bino, uh, the binoscope. And, you know, and it worked generally pretty well, although my main battle was in um, how to mount it. And, um, and you know, I, I couldn't see myself spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, on, a, um, on a tripod, you know, to, to hold this. And so I was trying to find the appropriate uh, tripod and head um you know on on amazon and um, you know based on the weight of of the of the binoscope and or the binoculars um you know which was around i think nine ish pounds nine or ten pounds roughly and um you know and so i i i got um you know uh, some uh, a tripod off of amazon that that was supposedly you know rated for 15 pounds and it was just like vibrating, like, you know, back and forth, back and forth every time I touched the thing. So it was very frustrating. So then I got a slightly bigger one off of Amazon and that also didn't work. Um, and then eventually uh, I saw a really, really high end one from Manfrotto on uh, Astro by Cell that, uh, that I ended up uh, pulling the trigger on. So I ended up spending, you know, like 200 bucks on it anyhow. So that was kind of, you know, that wasn't in the plan, but, but I could see how, you know, I wasn't able to cheap out on, on this, on this part of it. Um, unfortunately, uh, along the way, you know, one of the parts, um, you know, that I had printed broke and, you know, and so it needed to be reprinted and, uh, and that just went into the queue of things that I needed to do. And, um, um, and only recently did I reprint that particular part. So I'm, I'm going to get back to getting that, uh, getting that online. Cause it was, you know, the optically it was working pretty well. Um, but it needed some fine tuning on the collimation and, um, and I just haven't been able to spend the time to, to finish that up. So that was, that was one project that, uh, that I had picked up. Um, and then another one, um, that, uh, um, that I'm going to start on 
um, is is down this path. Of, and, and sorry, and one of the reasons for the binoculars was, you know, the the intent being it um, it was going to be more of a grab and go kind of thing. You know, it, it while it's relatively easy to to take my fourteen inch out into the backyard, um, you know, I can have it set up in about 10, 15 minutes. Um, you know, that's that's still not not exactly grab and go. That's kind of lug and go. Um, and, you know, and so to be able to just, you know, uh, bring the binoculars out, for example, and do the double star list, you know, that the chain's doing, I'm also doing that, um, you know, to be able to just grab and go, you know, is, is pretty compelling. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to try the binoculars. Um, but, uh, you know, but having said that, you know, I, I still want deeper aperture. And so another project that I'm going to be undertaking is a fast 16 inch and uh, a number of us are kind of uh, doing a um, a mirror making course, for lack of a better uh, word, with Mel Bartels. Um, and we're all doing essentially the same thing. We're all doing a 16 inch F3. And, uh, you know, and a 16 inch F3 is still a relatively small scope. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to be, you know, less than four feet in length and it's um, 16 inches in aperture that's that's pretty huge um and and but my spin on that is going to be that i want this to be something that is um well um well adapted to um electronically assisted astronomy and my idea here is that i would like to be able to take the 16 inch f3 put it on my deck and 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 throw on some filters so that I don't have to worry about the crappy skies and, and have it um, electronically assist. So basically doing uh, live stacking is, is essentially, you know, what I want to do and, you know, so that I can see the targets that I want to see without having to worry about driving an hour to a dark sky site. Obviously if I did, it would be even better, but I want to be able to do some of, some of this kind of thing from my backyard um, and it will also help with outreach because I'm still very interested in outreach as well. So to be able to, you know, point it at something and and have people have on their iPhones the image, you know, that that that's actually being being observed right now, you know, I think would be really really cool. So that's that's kind of where I want to drive this 16 inch, and uh, and so you know, so I've got the 16 inch blank and I've already slumped it to to the f3 in my kiln. Um, and, and I also did a bunch of, um, 16 inch, uh, blanks for other people in the, in, in the KW center, actually, um, we're also doing this course. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of 16 inch F3s that are kind of in the works. So, uh, so that's, that's another project that I've got on the go. How fast will um, that scope be? Sorry if you mention it, but. F3. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And then the and then the last scope that that I just got totally on a whim that I thought I would uh, try is um, a uh, a seventy millimeter Max Sudoff. Oh, and uh, and and I only just kind of stumbled on this because um, I was reading Cloudy Nights on, on that ATM forum, and someone had mentioned about Max Sudoff optics that were available at Surplus Shed. Mm -hmm. So anyone that's getting into ATM, you know, if they if they want to build um, uh, parts like, like, for example, you had someone on, or, or I think it was maybe it was an email, um, of someone who wanted to build eyepieces. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, surplus shed um, in the U.S. is kind of like the go-to place for tons of inexpensive optics, and uh, and so if you're interested in you know lenses to make your own eyepieces, for example, that would be where I would go to to kind of find you know find the parts that that you want. What do you and, think and- about? building your own eyepieces just you know well i i it's it's interesting you know because you know you're here here you are building you know all of the optics for your telescope except your eyepiece that seems kind of weird that you would then Mm -hmm. you know have to buy an eyepiece so part of me is is kind of finding that intriguing but at the same time you know, you got a fast scope and you've got a wide field of view. Um, you know, ideally you want a, a wide field eyepiece, you know, 82, 100 degree, you know, like, and those have got a lot of parts to them. And, mm-hmm. and I just can't see that as being practical, um, you know, making yourself. So, so I don't know. It's, it's, it would be, it would be nice to be able to make your eyepiece so that your entire optical path is, is constructed. Mm-hmm. But but I could see that as being particularly challenging. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but anyway, on, on this Max Sudoff thing, you know, the uh, there was a, a post on Cloudy Nights that said, "Hey, these Max Sudoff optics are back in stock," and apparently that you know once they go in stock, they're just like they they get snapped up really really quickly. So uh, so I thought, hey, that would be kind of cool. And 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 the reason I thought it would be really cool is I've been uh, I'm a I'm a big Scotch drinker. And, uh, you know, and some of these single malts, they, they come in these really nice, um, nice cylindrical tubes. Oh, okay. and I always thought, wouldn't it be cool to build a telescope out of one of those tubes? <laughs> I love and, this. This and is so like I, David so Levy's measured, beer can telescope. <laughs> yeah. And so I measured the diameter of the tube and I thought, holy crap, I could fit a 70 millimeter uh, objective in here. Uh... And, the length is, and the length is right too. So what I'd love to do is is build a max suit off um, in one of these uh, scotch tubes that i've got sort of here on my in my office so that's that's kind of the that's the vision and uh and hopefully hopefully it'll all kind of come together i am not a scotch drinker but i so want one of these <laughs> i just think so, that's so cool yeah so let's have see you, have you works. heard about Dave, david levy built a beer can telescope once i guess um i i think you had mentioned that uh recently uh I, <laughs> I think it was in the, in the context of that Questar conversation that, that you had with one of your guests. A couple yeah, of weeks ago, yeah, so. and uh, it's it's in the Telescope Museum there in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So that's worth yeah. seeing. But uh, yeah. yeah, very cool, very cool. So those those are those are my main uh, main projects that I've got on the go. Nice. We're getting uh, down towards the end here of this uh, episode, Tom. I'm curious uh, about those. Uh, was it one or, or a couple 16 inch blanks that exploded in your kiln just before I arrived? Yeah, it was, a, it was a couple. Um, so, so I'd mentioned, you know, that I had slumped a 16 inch uh, blank for myself. And that was uh, while I was also slumping blanks for, um, uh, for uh, a couple of guys in the, in the KW center. So what, and, the, what is the slumping? Like what, so you buy the blanks, why do you need a kiln? Like, don't you just grind the blanks down? Well, you can. Um, the 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 issue is so traditionally that's the way it was done, and and so you would have a blank, and it would be let's say an inch thick, and and then you would you would grind in your your curve. Um, but once you start to get to really fast mirrors, mm-hmm. um, like an F three, um, you know the depth of the curve is significant, and so what ends up happening is that your blank. Um, will be 
substantially thinner at the at the at the deepest part of your curve than it is at the edge. And so that introduces um, you know, potential problems with kind of like the the stiffness of the glass. Um, but it also introduces kind of differential cooling rates. You know, obviously the thinner areas of the glass will cool more rapidly than the, than the wider parts in the edge, you know, so that impacts your, um, um, impacts your optics. Um, plus, uh, you know, it turns out that, you know, the, those, that traditional way of making it, you know, your blanks didn't have to be that thick. And mm -hmm. so you can get away with substantially thinner glass if you slump the glass so that it's uniform thickness, like a contact lens, um, uniform thickness throughout its entire curvature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, so for example, you know, Mel has, has really pioneered this, you know, he, his 30 inch is 30 inch diameter mirror is I think five eighths of an inch thick, mm. uh, or it might even be a half inch thick. So it's like super thin. So I should mm -hmm. say five eighths, five eighths inch thin. Um, so very, very thin. Um, but to be able to do that, you, you, you need to you need to have uniform thickness throughout, and and so, or to use it successfully. And so what you do is um, you would uh, you'd get your blank, and you would um, create a form that had the curve that you want. You know, in this case, an F three curve. How do you make and, a like? Is the form made out of metal or? It, there's a variety yeah there's a variety of techniques and we're kind okay. of experimenting with the easiest way to do it so i do know people you know that have machined them and okay. uh, out of metal so that's okay. that is one option um the easier way to do it is um you basically would um um make uh make a blank out of plaster okay and then and then and then and then carve your curve into that plaster using just traditional ATM hogging techniques, but the plaster is just plaster. I mean, it's, it's, you know, not, not, not going to withstand a kiln. So what you do is, so you, you, you hog out your curve in the plaster. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you pour um, refractory cement, which is cement that can withstand high temperatures. Oh, okay. You pour that into the plaster. So then you cast your mold from that, or sorry, your plaster is your mold. And then your, your cement is your form. And then once that cement cures, then you put that in the kiln and then you put your glass on top of that. And then, and then you run it up to, to the appropriate temperature and, and the, and the glass kind of drapes over the form and mm -hmm. then, and basically takes, takes whatever, whatever form you've, you've um, cast. So, um, so that's the general technique. And then you end up with, you know, like a half inch thick piece of glass that's 16 inches in diameter and F3 mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. particular case. Now the the thing about using a kiln though is that um, when you when you when it drapes over the form um, and then and then you start to cool the glass, you need to cool it over a very very long period of time. And you know we're talking like two days mm -hmm. kind of long period of time. And the reason for that is because if the glass cools too too quickly then what's going to happen is that it will cool at the edges or on oh. the surfaces um, first, and then it will cool inside. And mm. what that ends up doing is it bakes in a bunch of stress into the glass. Um. And that stress can either catastrophically explode when you're working the mirror, 
or at or at least it will make the um make the mirror um uh, sort of not not operate well at differing temperatures you know so as as it cools you know the figure is going to change so the idea is that you don't want all of this stress in the glass and so what you need to do is you need to cool the glass very very gradually mm -hmm. and there are ways to test um, there are easy ways to test the stress inside of a glass and when I first did the blanks for the KW guys, you know, we did these polarizing tests to to measure the stress, and it what? turned out that this there is was crazy. Still, <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that there was a lot of stress baked into the glass, ah. and so I experimented with um, with um, doubling the length of time that uh, that it was in the kiln on the cool down cycle mm -hmm. and 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 did like before and after the stress and it made a dramatic reduction in the stress okay so then so but and, and so i'm getting to the exploding part um and so <laughs> so you know i had done these five blanks for the kw guys and you know and i sent them you know back and and and, and then we discovered this stress issue and and then and then the resolution to the stress issue. So what they decided to do was send the blanks back to me, and I was going to bake them again and take the stress out. Mm -hmm. But rather than do them one at a time, what I chose to do was to stack the glass inside of the kiln with some space in between them, but still stack the glass in the kiln and 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 kind of bake them all at once. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that was a super bad idea um, because there wasn't enough space in between all of the blanks. And so some of the blanks were were kind of heating and um, sort of uh, there was too much thermal gradient across the blanks. Mm -hmm. And of the five that went in, only two came out mm -hmm. and the others just exploded. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a real mess. And uh, so, you know, what we ended up doing um, was getting new blanks. For the guys and uh and re-slumping them with mm -hmm. this new kiln schedule that had the the longer um it's called annealing which is the process of de-stressing the glass oh, okay so you, you know you bring it up to a temperature where the glass is enough to drape over the form mm -hmm. um, and then you slowly uh, bring it down through this annealing temperature range which is where the stress gets baked out Mm -hmm. And if you go through too fast through that, then you end up, you know, keeping the stress in. So you need to go through this annealing range at a very, very low rate. Okay. And so, so I redid the glass, you know, for them. And then while I was doing theirs, I did one for me. And so that's how I got the 16 inch. So that's the, that's the exploding blank story. So where do you get a, a mirror making kiln? Like, is this just like a kiln you'd have somebody would get for pottery do you have to yes. build this this is basically like some sort of mini because i saw it and it looked like something out of a submarine just to be frank <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the yeah so the one that i have is a is a ceramic kiln so okay. it's made it's made for ceramics um and and the only the only magic part there is that there's a special controller that you need to either build or buy that um that does the programming of it because you know ceramics you, you just basically turn the kiln on and then and then you you come back you know a couple hours later and you turn the kiln off and and your your bowls are done you know yeah. but but because of this this precise temperature control mm -hmm. you need you need you need a, a controller for it um so yeah so that that's what i have um but you can certainly make your own kiln right you know uh, all from the ground up um you know and one of the reasons for doing that is because you can 
you know, um, basically make the kiln the right size for what you need. And mm -hmm. if you remember my kiln, you know, it's it's 17 inches in diameter. So the biggest diameter of glass that I can slump is 16. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of vertical height in the kiln, which is just wasted space, right? Because, you know, my, the glass itself is a half inch thick. And so, you know, let's say you needed, um, you know, six inches on either side, you know, just for airflow and whatnot. You know, the, the kiln shouldn't be more than 12 inches high. Whereas the one that I've got is, you know, like a good three, three feet high. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of wasted space. So if you wanted to make a kiln that was optimized for slumping glass, you, mm -hmm. you can absolutely do that too. And that would allow you to get, you know, potentially a bigger diameter, um, you know, but not take up as much vertical space. So, mm -hmm. so you don't have to go down that path and, you know, say a ceramic kiln will work, um, but you can certainly build your own kiln right from the ground up too. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of blew me away when I saw that. It looks kind of like a mini washing machine that came out yeah. of like a, like a World War II submarine. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. Because it's got that cool stainless steel outside. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I got that cool. out. I got that on Craigslist for, um, I think I got um, two kilns because there was another kiln that, um, that they just gave me for parts. Um, and I got the two of them together for, I think, 120 bucks. Holy smokes. So yeah, it's not, uh, wasn't, wasn't expensive. Wow, that's uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Uh, sort of sadly, we're getting towards the end of our time. Tom, just want to make sure that uh, that you're able to uh, mention anything that perhaps we we didn't get to that you were hoping to cover. Um, I don't think so. I think we. I, I guess uh, you know that if 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 the question comes up, how does one get into ATM? You know, mm -hmm. I think I think the first question to the first way to answer that question is, what do you want out of it? Mm -hmm. um you know and and what what aspect of atm interests you so so know what it is that you that you want to achieve mm -hmm. um, and then if you're interested in refractor kind of stuff or ips building you know surplus shed is a great resource um cloudy nights is an awesome resource um for for any aspect of this mm -hmm. and uh yeah and and you know people are people are super helpful i think you mentioned this at the beginning you know that it, this is not really a competitive thing no yeah. Right. And and so everyone is is very gracious with their time and advice. In some cases, too gracious. So, you know, like you'll you'll often ask a question and you'll get, you know, three different answers, you know. And yeah. so that's that is a problem too. Yeah. Um, so pick your mentors and stick with them and um, you know, try not to get distracted. But uh, but yeah, it's it's generally there's more information than a lack of information. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like it's a very it's a very neat and close knit community. I really, it's it's one of those facets of astronomy that I really wish I could have uh, sunk my teeth into a bit more. I'm not very much of a handy person, uh, like I'm not really a an artistic person, but I I've kind of put my effort into the sketching. Uh, but I could have gone either way. I got to admit the uh, the telescope making is one of those aspects that I just find just completely fascinating. Like when I was at your house, I was just like just so enthralled with seeing your telescope and the binoculars. And then when Peter came down, just, just to sort of be a fly on the wall, listening to you guys talk about this stuff. It's, it's so cool because for me anyway, when, when you're talking about making 16 inch F threes or a 14 inch F two, I know like you and I will, will text sometimes and I'll send you off. I was sending you some of those sketches I was doing. And, and part of it is like, it's like, I want to look at these through your telescope. Cause I think that, uh, you know, 
a lot of the targets that I like to observe and sketch would just be like amazing through through yeah. these instruments that that you folks are building. It's really yeah. cool. But it you know it takes time, and and so my response to that would be I want to look through those uh, through my telescope to see those things too. Yeah, you know, and and it's you know and it's frustrating that there are only so many hours in the day. Yeah, um, you know, so you you get you get a ton of observing under your belt, which I'm envious of. You know, and I and I wish I could uh, do more of, but. Yeah, we got to get you guys out here sometime. Like, and I, I'm not. Yeah. This isn't like a empty off or anything. Like, I've been bugging Peter for years to uh, to come out just just because, uh, like, getting one of those uh, 24, or 20, or 25 inch telescopes. I know that that he has or is working on uh, into these dark skies out here would just be uh, incredible. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'd uh, love to see grasslands. Yeah, oh, it'd be cool. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah, you guys should definitely. Um, you know, and there's other folks there too, would be great to, uh, to get out like Michael Wright and, and yeah. other people like that. So yeah, yeah it yeah. would, it would be a lot of fun. I think, uh, the only warning for you, I, I guess, and for some of the others is that uh, if we stay at my cabin for any period of time, the, uh, the, the head clearance, uh, well, well, you, you guys might need to wear helmets in there. It's pretty low. So. <laughs> <laughs> Shane laughs. Cause he's like, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Bring, bring Tylenol for the headache. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think if we're bringing our scopes, though, it would be, you know, we'll, we'll have like a camper or something, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Mike has a camper. I'm sure, I'm sure Mike could easily be convinced to help out with this project if there was a uh, 20 plus inch uh, telescopes involved or super fast, large 14 yeah. to 16 inch telescopes. Yeah, it'd be cool. Well, we're getting towards the end here, Shane. Is there anything you want to hop in with? Thanks, Tom. Uh, appreciated the conversation. I didn't do a lot of talking, but I, I really enjoyed just hearing you talk about, you know, uh, kind of getting, I don't know, maybe a little more in depth on the ATM stuff. This is always, as Chris said, a fascinating topic to me. Um, I do live vicariously through you guys. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I would ever take this on myself, but you know, what, what you folks churn out for, for telescopes is just phenomenal to me like hearing like f ratios of three and 2.6 and stuff like that just it's like incomprehensible to me <laughs> so <laughs> i think it's amazing yeah. so thanks for the conversation oh you're very welcome it's very enjoyable yeah thanks so much tom and uh thanks for uh coming and picking me up that day and take me out to see all this stuff it was uh it was really cool yeah and oh, then great to meet you in person yeah and as well to arrange like tom and i have some like we met sort of through the podcast but it turned out we we had some mutual friends and so uh it was also great that day to get to uh together with those folks uh just while we were chatting there uh tom you had mentioned a, f a few things that uh we had uh covered in previous episodes uh Episode number three three one. We had Mar Mar Mel Bartels on talking about ultra fast telescopes. We had Dale Eason on episode uh, number two ninety eight. Uh, uh, Mark Radici came on and talked about the uh, that sort of live image stacking on episode three sixty one. And then of course uh, Robert uh, Asamundi uh, was on talking about those three D binoculars on episode three twenty one. And so if listeners are listening to this, uh, you can go ahead and take a look. I think one of the advantages. For, for us and doing these shows, Shane, is that we get to to meet all these interesting, fascinating people, um, talk about big telescopes, like uh, uh, another person who's been on is Howard Vanich, um, and we've had other people on talking about large telescopes, but when, when we're up into like 400 plus episodes now, even though we might have done 
several episodes in telescope making or several episodes on big telescopes that we're putting out so many episodes, they kind of can get lost in the archive, I think. No, that's a great point. Glad, glad you mentioned that. I, I even, uh, you know, am starting to get to the point where I need to go back and re-listen to some of the episodes because I, <laughs> I think I've forgotten some of the details. Excellent. You well, need to feed so them much. into chat GPT and get transcripts and, uh, there we go. <laughs> that uh, would be the way archives. To do. Yeah. We should be doing that for sure. For sure. Well, thanks so much, Tom. It was a, uh, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for offering to come on it, uh, with sort of perfect timing, uh, in, in a way, like it's, it's fun to do episodes uh, with Shane and I, but we do these episodes for the listeners and you would actually picked up that, a uh, a listener or more listeners that had actually referred to, um, ATM stuff, amateur telescope making stuff in their emails to us that we were reading and had offered to come on. And that's really awesome because, uh, that is one thing that we notice in the amateur community is that people will step up and, and give back to that community. And it's a really nice reciprocal process that, uh, we certainly appreciate when, uh, when people do make the offer like yourself. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, uh, everybody else who's listening, thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe, share the show with other stargazers you know. And if you have any show ideas, send us those. Observations, questions, please send them to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.